Uh, today's reading is uh, taken from the Gospel of Mark, um, starting in chapter 9, verse 2. Uh, the words are on the screen, but if you would like a paper copy of the Bible, just raise your hand and uh, Stuart will... Uh, steward. Not Stuart, don't know who he is, but he's not coming. Um, all right, <laughs> verse, starting from verse 2. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead means, meant. And they asked him, why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they have done to him everything they wished, just as it is written about him. This is the word of the Lord. I pray for Gareth before he speaks to us. Dear God, thank you that you've already been speaking to us through your word and through our connection in worship, Lord. May you continue to do so through our brother Gareth. In your name, amen. For that one moment, in and out of time, on that one mountain where all moments meet, the daily veil that covers the sublime in darkling glass fell dazzled at his feet. There were no angels full of eyes and wings, just living glory full of truth and grace. The love that dances at the heart of things shone out upon us from a human face. And to that light, the light in us leapt up. We felt it quicken somewhere deep within. A sudden blaze of long extinguished hope trembled and tingled through the tender skin. Nor can this blackened sky, this darkened scar, eclipse that glimpse of how things really are. That poem was not written by me. Uh, you won't be surprised to know. And I normally reserve my poetry recitals for the nine o'clock congregation. Um, but I felt that that captured something so beautifully of the ultimate mountaintop moment which occurs in Mark chapter nine. And I wonder, if you've heard that expression, or if you yourself have ever had what you might describe as a mountaintop moment. What do I mean by that? A mountaintop moment uh, is one of those times or occasions or episodes in your life where you have had a particularly powerful encounter with God. 
where he has shown up in your life, in your situation, and given you a glimpse of his glory, of his goodness, or of his grace. Maybe a moment where some of the things you know, some of the facts about God that you could list off in your head became true to you in your heart, in your soul, or maybe in your gut in a way that they never had before. I wonder if you've ever had a moment like this. Now, I appreciate when I say this that that's not going to have been part of everybody's stories. Some of you will relate to the journey I described, but it's a sort of thing that has happened gradually on a more of a moment-my-moment basis rather than in one dramatic episode up a mountain. And so it's possible for some people to get a little bit cynical about the very concept of mountaintop moments. Maybe we think it's some kind of Christian cliche, some kind of Instagrammable dream that uh, certain people live out. And so we think that either it doesn't really happen, or if it did happen, it only happened back then, and it's not something that could ever be real or relevant to me now. But it seems to me as I read scripture that there is a lot of biblical precedent, that there are a lot of biblical examples of mountaintop moments, of God meeting particular people at particular times and giving them a glimpse of his glory. Moses, uh, having rescued or having been used by God in the rescue of Israel out of Egypt, um, is taken up Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 19. God leads him up the mountain and he gives them the Ten Commandments. And then later on, when the people of Israel have messed up massively by worshipping the golden cow, uh, he has another mountaintop moment. In Exodus 33, he has this incredible encounter with God's glory. And then in the next chapter, once again, Moses is invited up Mount Sinai And God reveals something of his character, telling Moses that I am the Lord. I am gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Later on in the Old Testament, in the book of 1 Kings, the prophet Elijah has two very distinct mountaintop moments in chapter 18 and chapter 19. In chapter 18, God shows up mightily on Mount Carmel when Elijah is having a bit of a a battle with some prophets, the prophets of Baal, and God sends fire to soak up a sacrifice whilst the prophets of Baal are left embarrassed. But only a chapter later, Elijah's life is under threat, and so he decides to flee. But once again, the Lord invites Elijah up a mountain, this time um, to Mount Horeb, where he doesn't speak in the fire, he doesn't speak in the earthquake, he speaks in a whisper, words of comfort and restoration to Elijah. And so here again, we find ourselves up a mountain as we reconvene our series on Mark's gospel, where we're going to be for the next nine weeks leading up to Easter. We come to another major mountaintop moment where Jesus is there with three of his disciples And who is there to meet them but our two mountain men, Moses and Elijah? And so this evening, I almost suppose I want to make a case for mountaintop moments. 
Now, if you were here last week and you heard everything I said about sustainable spirituality, about the gradual growth of the plant, about discipleship being a day-by-day process and not all about big spiritual experiences, you may wonder why I'm going to make this case tonight. But as we look at our passage, our teaching text from Mark 9, I want to partly help us reframe what a mountaintop experience is and what it's for, but also I want to suggest four reasons why God does sometimes meet us on the mountain, why he does that, and what purpose that does serve in our day-to-day discipleship. So four reasons. The first of which is mountaintop moments happen so that we can experience a glimpse of God's glory. They happen so that we can experience a glimpse of God's glory. So far in Mark's gospel, the disciples have spent loads of time following Jesus. They've heard him teach, they've seen him perform miracles, signs, and wonders. And by the time you get to chapter 8, you have this episode which indicates that maybe, just maybe, they've started to really get a sense of who Jesus is. Peter, one of the disciples, declares, you are the Messiah, the chosen one of Israel. And so there's this sense that maybe they've got a sense of who this man is that they're following. Now, it turns out that Peter doesn't quite know all that comes with Jesus being the Messiah, but let's leave that for now. And yet, having had that moment, Jesus then, six days after that episode, invites Peter, James, and John up a mountain with them. And then it says in verse 2 that there he was transfigured before them. Now, the word transfigured is is a word that I don't think I ever hear used in connection with anything else other than this particular passage and this particular episode. But maybe uh, an easier word would be transformed. It's the Greek word metamorphosis. Now, it's important to note right here, right now, that what happens now is not that Jesus somehow changes in himself, but rather Jesus is revealed in the fullness of who he already was. It's like the veil is lifted and we get a glimpse of the glory that is within him. And the fact that this happens next to Moses and Elijah, the giver of the law and one of the major prophets, two people that went up a mountain themselves, two people that there were rumors about never having died, is a way of saying that Jesus is the greater Moses. He's greater than the lawgiver. He is the greater Elijah. He's greater than the greatest prophet. Jesus is glorious. He is God in human form. There is a big theological message going on here. However, what strikes me about this passage is that it doesn't just list a bunch of Jesus's theological credentials. It isn't just a set of facts about who this Messiah is, about who Jesus, the Son of God, is. Rather, it's an invitation for those disciples to experience for themselves who Jesus is and to get a glimpse and experience his glory. This event is a visual event. In verse 3, as he's transfigured, his clothes become dazzling white, whiter than anything the world could bleach. There's this indescribable glory shines out of Jesus. 
and the disciples are there to see it. It's visual. It's audible in verse 7. A voice from heaven comes down and says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. It's visual, it's audible, but it's also an emotional experience. In verse 6, it says that Peter speaks because he was terrified. So it wasn't necessarily, in this case, a warm, fuzzy experience of God. It was a terrifying experience of the true glory that was in Jesus. And I think there's something really important here about the role of experience in our Christian faith and in our discipleship. Because God doesn't just want you to know a bunch of stuff about him. He doesn't want you to just be able to list off a bunch of his credentials. He doesn't want you to just know certain things. He wants you to know who he is in your heart, in your soul, in your gut, in, your very, in the very fiber of your being. And I think sometimes in the church, there can be some skepticism about the role of experience. When we talk about experiencing God, some people get a little bit nervous. Sometimes, I think, because they think that that was something for back then and not for now. Or sometimes, I think it's because they're worried that if we base how we know God on our experience, that we're going to somehow be adding to the Bible. We're going to be adding extra revelation, extra information to that which is already being given to us here. But it seems to me that the purpose of experience in this passage and in the stories of people that I meet day to day, when we experience God, it never gives us new information about him that isn't already written in scripture, but rather we experience God so that the things that we might have heard, the things that we might have been brought up with in Sunday school, the things which we might have read and are processing might go from what we know to what we know you know what I mean? We experience so that this notion of God's glory becomes a glimpse of God's glory in our hearts, in our minds, in our souls. And it seems that throughout the history of the church, God has been using experiences of his glory, his goodness, and his grace as a way of truly transforming people who follow him. So I want to tell you two or three stories from back in the day and more recent. Firstly, I want to tell you about a vicar called John. John was nearly 35, uh, and he'd been ordained for about 10 years. And uh, he'd not long come back to the UK after what had been a fairly disastrous mission trip in the US. It had been wildly unsuccessful two years out there. And on his way back... Um, several people had even died and he'd been in real danger on the ship on the way back. And so six months after this had happened, despite the fact that he'd been a Christian all his life, he'd been a vicar for 10 years, he found himself in a really low ebb. It'd be really difficult to question John's commitment to the cause of Christianity, but somehow it didn't feel real in his heart and in his soul. By the way, this vicar called John is not my other curate. Um, or not my other curate, Steve's other curate, let's get that right. Um, Because John uh, was having this experience on the 24th of May, 1738. And on that day, John was invited along to a meeting taking place uh, with a group of Moravian missionaries in Aldersgate. 
And this is how he writes about this experience in his journal. In the evening, I went very unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate Street where one was reading Luther's preface to the epistle to the Romans. About a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation, and an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. Now, some of you might be wondering why I'm talking about some random vicar called John. Others might know this story, know that this is, in fact, the story of John Wesley, who, as it happens, was always died a vicar in the Church of England, um, but is known as the founder of the Methodist Church and was used mightily by God to bring about a real revival in the UK. But his journey in earnest really began or was ignited by this moment that happened in this little meeting in Aldersgate. And I love this story for a couple of reasons. One, you talk about mountaintop moments, and maybe uh, if you did think of a mountaintop moment, it happened at Soul Survivor or at some conference, or, or maybe it even happened in a big meeting in church. I love that John Wesley had this mountaintop moment when someone was reading out Martin Luther's preface to the epistle to the Romans. I love that in what could seem like a dry theological text, God awoke something powerful in Wesley's heart. I also think it's encouraging that there's no doubting his faith or his salvation before he had that moment. It wasn't that he wasn't saved. It wasn't that he didn't know who Jesus was. It wasn't that he wasn't committed. He'd gone abroad and served him faithfully. But for whatever reason, there was some blockage which meant that that thing that he knew, he didn't quite know in his heart yet. And it was when God removed that blockage that he was able to fully step in to be the vicar, the priest, the leader, and the man that God had called him to be. Now again, you might say, okay, well, maybe it happened uh, in the Bible, and maybe it has happened uh, in, in key people throughout church history, but does this still happen today? Well, you, again, you may have been here last week and heard Verity's story about her journey of faith, and I've asked Verity's permission to share and refer to this. Verity, uh, who's a student uh, here and is here, I won't make her wave, um, told her story about how she came along to Alpha, having been invited by Helena, and uh, as... Alpha went on, a lot of the kind of intellectual objections that she had to the Christian faith started to slip away, slip away. Oh, maybe this was reasonable. Maybe it was true. Well, apparently, there is way more historical evidence for Jesus and who he was, and even that he rose again than I ever dared imagine. And week by week, conversation by conversation, intellectually, it started to make more and more sense. However, Alongside that intellectual journey, Verity shared the story of how when she was here at Vintage, she had this experience of the Holy Spirit where she felt his presence, she felt his peace, and mix that with what had already been going on intellectually. She went from knowing about Jesus to then having a fresh sense of knowing who he was. It's that moment of the heart being strangely warmed. 
And again, you might think, okay, well, that happened at a conference, even if it was St. Nick's conference. That still happened in this big moment. Well, a couple of years ago, um, I remember uh, we, NG7 ran Alpha, and there was a guy called Tom. It was Tom, wasn't it? I'm looking at Will. There was a guy called Tom that came along. Uh, his girlfriend was a Christian, and so he decided, uh, and I think it was one of those cases where if they were ever going to get married, he was going have to have to become a Christian too. So he came along to Alpha, but decided to come uh, to here rather than Trent Vineyard where his um, girlfriend was. And he came to this NG7 Alpha at the Lenten Center, and again, it was like week by week, conversation by conversation, Tom, who was a physicist, started to think that maybe the notion of God being real is true. Maybe there really was a creator. Maybe that creator was the God of the Bible. Maybe Jesus was God's son. Maybe Jesus was himself God. And intellectually, week by week, it started to make more and more sense. But it was like there was this little thing missing. He needed to not just know it, but know it. And actually, Tom couldn't come along to the day away, which was held. But uh, Will James, who went above and beyond as an Alpha group leader, said, okay, Tom, why don't you, uh, me, Gareth, and maybe a couple of others, gather around uh, in our living room one night, we'll, put, we'll have some pizza, we'll watch a couple of the videos, and then we'll pray. How does that sound? So that's what we did. We sat around, we made pizza, we watched a couple of videos, and then we just sat there. I think at that point there was maybe three or four of us sitting in uh, Will's living room and we waited on God. And at that moment Tom said, God, if you're real reveal yourself to me. And he had this sense of his heart beating quickly and of a real sense of peace and God's presence fall on him. And in that moment he gave his life to Jesus because there's a difference between simply knowing something and experiencing the reality of that in the very depth of our being. I love how in the version of this passage which uh, Luke writes, he talks about how the disciples uh, in Luke 9 verse 32 are a little bit drowsy, they're sleepy, but then they become fully awake and are able to see the glimpse of this glory of who Jesus really is. And that, I think, is what God is saying to us this evening. God wants you to be fully awake. He wants you to own the thing that maybe you grew up with, maybe you've been taught, or maybe that you're just processing at the moment but can't quite make the journey from here to there. We have a God who there is all kinds of reasonable, rational reasons to believe and trust in. But he wants us to experience his goodness, his glory, and his grace. He wants us to be fully awake, to have hearts strangely warmed, to have a sense of his peace and his presence, so that we know that he is real, that he loves us, and that salvation can be true for us, even us. God wants you to be fully awake, but of course the challenge is, for so many of us, whether, it, whether or not we've been Christians for a while or we're just on the cusp of committing, it's so tempting to hit the spiritual snooze button, to think, maybe it will happen later. Maybe if I, if I just keep on processing this intellectually, it will all make sense by itself. But this evening, I want to suggest you stop hitting the snooze button because God wants you to be fully awake, to have a heart strangely warm so that you can be fully alive in him and for him. Mountaintop moments help us experience God's glory, but secondly, 
They exist to expand our expectations of what God can do. Mountaintop moments happen to expand our expectations. Uh, One of the most famous parts of this passage is verse 5, where in the midst of all that's going on, Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And then in verse 6, the damning, damning line, he did not know what he was saying. Now, it's very easy to read this, and often people talk about what Peter says here as a quirk of his personality. Oh, that's Peter being Peter, that rogue disciple. Oh, that's Peter being Peter, being practical. Oh, that's Peter being Peter, speaking without thinking. And and maybe that's true, but actually I think that what Peter does here is symptomatic and symbolic of what any of us might do in that situation for a couple of reasons. And the first one is I think there's a desire on Peter's part to contain Jesus's presence. Or rather, he's got too low an expectation of what actually what um, is happening means. He sees Jesus in all his glory and thinks, okay, this is pretty cool, um, it's pretty frightening. Maybe uh, this is something that we can box up and I can contain the presence of Jesus and his glory in a tent. And that will be a way of making sense and boxing this in. There's also evidence in the gospel that Peter and the disciples also wanted to contain Jesus' purpose to one place. Every time in the gospel Jesus talks about how the fact that he's going to die and rise again, the disciples are like, what does that mean? No, there's no way. Because in their mindset, Jesus had come to rescue the nation of Israel. But actually, the fact that Jesus was going to die, it didn't mean that he wasn't going to meet their expectations. It actually meant that he had a bigger, more exciting, more expansive thing to do. And so often we want to contain either Jesus' present. presence just to our box and where we are, or contain Jesus's purpose to what's going on in the church. But God gives us a glimpse of his glory because he wants to expand our horizons. He wants to raise our expectations. And I think this is true for those of us who've been following him for a while. I know that I always seem to have lower expectations of what God is going to do than what he does. Even this past week, um, I got a message earlier in the week from uh, Daniel and Angelica saying that they'd been at Globe Cafe and that they'd invited three Chinese students to come along to Alpha. And my gut instinct was to go, I'll pray for that. But I'll be honest, I just assumed they weren't going to come. I've just sometimes got into that mindset where I just assume, oh, that's great. I invite people to come to church in night church all the time. It it looks like they're going to come and then they don't. And I just have this low expectation mindset I turn up to Alpha on Tuesday. Not only were the three uh, students who said they were going to come there, they brought a fourth person along as well. So often I think God actually wants to exceed our expectations. That is true for us of following Jesus for a while, but I also think it's true for us that are again on that cusp of making a step of faith. One of the reasons why I think we often want to hit the spiritual snooze button is because actually we have pretty low expectations of what a life with Jesus might actually look like. We think that it means saying goodbye to excitement or intrigue or adventure. But actually, Jesus wants to invite you on the biggest, most profound, most amazing adventure that you could ever imagine. God wants to expand our horizons. He wants to expand our expectations of what is possible. Number three... 
mountaintop moments happen because Jesus wants to encourage us for the task ahead. Jesus wants to encourage us for the task ahead. Going back to verse 5 and Peter's desire to put Jesus and the two prophets in a tent. I think when I reflect on my own response to times when I've had dramatic experiences of God's presence or I've heard him speak to me, and that could be when I've been at a conference or it could be when God has spoken to me particularly powerful, my desire is always to pitch a tent at the top of that mountain because I want to stay there, because I want to savor that moment, because I don't want to leave, because I'm scared of what might happen if I go down the mountain. And so I think what Peter's doing is very natural. And how many of us have had a particular... And this, this is true in, in lots of areas of life. If you're not yet following Jesus, you may be able to relate to this when you've had a particularly uh, exciting time or season or you've, uh, you know, you've had a great experience. Our temptation is to want to pitch a tent and stay there if we've grown up going to Soul Survivor, you never want to pull that tent up at the end of the week because you're scared that when I go back to my normal life and to church, that it just won't be the same, that Jesus' presence won't be there. But the reason, there's two reasons why we can't stay on the mountain. And the first is that it exists to encourage us for the task that lies ahead of us. One thing uh, which you see is as soon as the disciples actually get down the mountain, they get straight into the thick of things where some of the other disciples are trying to cast out uh, a demon in this young boy and bring about healing. So immediately after they come down the mountain, there's work to do. We talk sometimes uh, at Snicks about discipleship being about being with Jesus, becoming like Jesus, doing what Jesus did. The third part is really important. We spend time with Jesus and we become like him so that we can do the thing that he has asked and called and commissioned us to do, to, bring, to be representatives of him, to be carriers of his presence, to be carriers of his truth. God wants to give us a glimpse of his glory, but he doesn't want us to keep it to ourselves, to bottle up, to keep it contained in a tent so that nobody else can see it or hear it or know about it. He wants us to bring it uh, and to be carriers of his presence in a world that is desperately in need of him. In verse 10, there's this interesting moment where um, Jesus, as they're going down the mountain, talks again about uh, the fact that he's going to die and rise again, but he also tells the two disciples, don't tell anybody about this until I've risen again, and that may seem contrary to what I've just been trying to say. But I think he asks for this secrecy for two reasons. One, I think quite simply, the disciples are not going to understand what on earth they've just experienced until actually Jesus has risen again. But secondly, I think because when Jesus has risen, that is when the work will really begin. And it seems significant to me that Peter and James and John were three of the most important instrumental figures in the development and the growth and the building of God's church. Whether it's Moses or Elijah, whether it's John Wesley, whether it's the disciples, these mountaintop moments happen because God wants to use us to share what we've been given. And this is true even in the life of Jesus. 
Jesus himself has a mountaintop moment here where he hears his father's voice affirm who he is. The last time he had that was in chapter 1, verse 11, at his baptism. And in both those moments, it occurs just before, firstly, he goes into the wilderness and begins his preaching ministry, and secondly, before he moves on his way to the cross, which brings us to our fourth and final point, that mountaintop moments happen to enable endurance through hard times. Mountaintop moments happen to enable endurance through hard times. Our encounters on the mountain exist to help us survive and even thrive when we're in the valley. Now, before I continue, I've got about 84 disclaimers about this, partly in relation to last week. Um, because I think it, it can be really dangerous when we try and sustain our faith simply based on mountaintop moments, when we try and, and sustain lifelong discipleship based on annual retreats or, or uh, semi-regular conferences, even if you try and sustain your faith simply on your week-to-week Sunday gathering, that is probably not a healthy way of living with Jesus. I heard it said recently that more people die on the way down from Everest than walking up it. And I sometimes think that's true of faith as well, that actually it's in the letdown period after we've had a particularly dramatic realization of God when we're brought back down to earth. That is sometimes one of the most dangerous times in the life of faith. And so we want to talk about uh, discipleship and following Jesus as a sustainable thing. Again, think back to that image of the plant last week. Our faith needs to be watered week by week. We can't just do binge Christianity. Um, and it strikes me as important that Jesus had uh, a very different type of mountaintop moment. In chapter 6, it says he goes away to be on a mountain to pray with his father. And so if we're going to do this thing of following Jesus, we need to not just have these big gatherings and dramatic emotional experiences, but actually we need to just go away and be with our Father uh, on our own. And in verse 8, I love this verse, it says, Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. And there have to be times in our life of faith where we look around and there's no one else with us except Jesus. And finally, uh, we need to welcome God's presence into the everyday. God comes down from the mountain and meets us in the everyday. I don't have a copy with me, but I'd love to recommend a book that I've been dipping into called The Liturgy of the Ordinary by um, someone called Tish Harrison Warren. And she's written this wonderful book, which is all about God's presence meeting her in day-to-day tasks. There's a chapter about answering her emails. There's a chapter about making the bed. There's a chapter about brushing her teeth. And there's a chapter about arguing with her husband. And in all of these, she reflects and she ponders how God is present and how he works out his purposes in her, even in the mundane. Now, with all of that said, I still think that there is a precious place that mountaintop moments have in keeping us going when the going gets tough. Firstly, by looking back, um, I'm struck, I don't know, one of my favorite psalms is Psalm 42. And it's a psalm written by somebody that could not be further away from a big mountaintop experience um, than anything you could imagine. 
It's about somebody in a, in a season where they feel dry, where they feel distant from God, where they don't know what's going on. Um, and they sort of say things like, my soul, why are you so downcast? Why does your presence seem so far away? Where is your God? But in all of this, they write, they write this, verse 5. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Convincing themselves, put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my saviour and my God. And then it says, my soul is downcast within me, therefore I will remember you from the land of the Jordan, the heights of Hermon from Mount Mizar. They remember God's presence from the heights of Mount Hermon from Mount Mizar. Now, as it happens, Mount Hermon is one of the places people think the transfiguration might have happened. Maybe a coincidence, but I find it intriguing that in this psalm, we get a glimpse of somebody that is wrestling with the fact that God does not seem to be close that they can't really connect emotionally with God, that they feel dry, that they feel confused. But what do they do? They think back and they look back to that time when they knew God was near. And so if you are in a, in a valley at the moment, if you are in a season where it feels like God is distant, like you don't know what's going on, and actually it, it might seem on the surface to be painful to look back and to think of a time when God felt near, but I want to commend to you that that is the practice, that's the spiritual discipline that the psalmist in Psalm 42 does. Because when we remember when God was near, we remember that he is real. We remember that time when maybe our heart was strangely warmed, when we did feel fully alive. Because the God who was there and near and real then is the same God now, the same God yesterday, today, and forever, and the same God who is real in this dry season. So mountaintop experiences help us look back, but also in Scripture we have the promise looking forward. And Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 3, But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is a spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we, who, with, who all with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And he goes on in chapter 4 to say, And we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed, we always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. So then, death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. Mountaintop moments don't just happen for the sake of it. They're an opportunity to experience a glimpse of God's glory, to expand our expectations, to be encouraged for the task that lies ahead, and so that we might endure the hard times where the mountain seems far away. Now, I don't know where you are in that, um, and I'm going I'm to bring this to land. I'm going to look at the band and invite the band to come back up. 
Um, I really wanted to have finished this sermon at, at, by quarter to eight, and I've not quite managed it. Um, because there seems to be something, it, it just struck me as I was thinking about that Wesley story, about it being quarter to eight on a normal Sunday evening. And maybe uh, tonight, at nearly 10 to 8, you're in a place where actually it's time uh, for you to make yourself, make yourself available for God to meet with you. Where you know that it's time for you to stop hitting that snooze button and be available so that God might make you fully alive. Maybe you've never quite said yes to Jesus and tonight is your night. No reason why not. No reason why 10 to 8 at, in Nottingham at St. Nick's couldn't be that night. Or it might be that you know that you have been going through the motions in your faith, that you've known a bunch of stuff, that you believe it, and I, and I think you're committed, and I think you're saved, but actually you need to know in your heart, you need to feel your heart strangely warm to the truth of who Jesus is and what he's done for you tonight. Or it might be that you are going through a dry, uh, a dry season where God feels distant, or, or you're just really intimidated about the next journey or calling that you're stepping into. But in all of those things, I want to invite you to make yourself available tonight so that the Spirit might work within us and reveal to, her, to us the glory of Jesus so that we might be fully awake and fully awake for the sake of the world around us.